we um, were reminiscing, though, at that appointment about the same appointment that we had had two years prior with our first, um, during which we found out that we were having a girl um, and bought girl clothes and thought of a girl name and had two girl baby showers, only to find out at another appointment 12 weeks later, well, I'll just replay the moment. We're sitting there. The technician says, oh, so do you know what you're having? I said, yeah, we're having a girl. She looks at us and goes, who told you that? We said, you did? <laughs> and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This never happens. I'm so sorry. You're definitely having a boy. <clears throat> so that's a destabilizing moment. Is the, is the, that's the phrase I want to use today. Destabilizing moment, right? Like if I would have been standing up at that time, if we would have been standing up, we would have grabbed the nearest chair and sat down because our legs would have given away, right? Um, we all have, we can probably think of some moments that were destabilizing like that along the way. Now, of course, and, and we even use that phrasing for it, right? We tell somebody, like, you're going to want to sit down for this, right? And of course, that one, when you find out that your lab technician, this ultrasound technician accidentally wrote down the wrong gender, like, it only took a few days, okay, weeks before we were able to laugh about that. Um, but for many of us, we've experienced destabilizing situations that were far more serious, you find out that your loved one has committed suicide and you get that news. Or the doctor comes into the room to share the news with you that it's cancer. Um, Or you look at your search history and find out that your spouse has been looking at porn. Um, Those are moments that have the potential to really shake us up and even rock the very core of the stability that we have in our lives. Uh, That's what our passage is about today, is that stability and instability, that idea. It's it's Isaiah 7. Would you turn there with me? The seventh chapter of Isaiah. As you're turning there with me to Isaiah 7, let me uh, set the stage a little bit with the background. The king of Judah at this time is a guy named Ahaz. Okay. Um, He is experiencing a destabilizing situation of his own at this time. So he's a king from David's line. This line of the house of David has been coming down generation to generation to generation down to him, King Ahaz. And now, knocking on his door are two enemies who have allied, allied against him, allied together against him, and are trying to attack Jerusalem. And it looks, from his perspective, like He might be the last king from David's line. This could be where it all ends. I could be the king, Ahaz, who ends up being the last king from David's line and ruins it all because I let us get destroyed and I got deposed and they put somebody in charge who's not from the line of David. That's the experience, the destabilizing experience that Ahaz is experiencing in this text. Um, So we're going to look at that in Isaiah 7 and think about what it means for our own destabilizing situations. But before we do, let me just give you one more reminder of where we are in this book of Isaiah. It's a 66-chapter book. We're working our way through these early chapters right now. So chapters 1 through 5, we started with a month or two ago, that introduced the major themes and introduced this big problem that God's people are not who they were meant to be. Then last week, we looked at chapter 6. It was Isaiah's calling narrative. And in Isaiah experienced grace, but through judgment. He was 
uh, atoned. He was made one with God again, but through a painful purifying process. And now we're in chapter 7 through 12 for the next few weeks, in which we're going to see that Judah and Israel have to go through that same process that Isaiah personally went through in chapter 6. Like their path to being atoned, uh, their sin being atoned for will be a similar one, that it'll be grace through judgment, just like Isaiah experienced in miniature in his own life. So that's what we're going to see in these coming chapters. So today where we are is right here in chapter 7. Um, we said it's about stability. Specifically, it's an absence of stability in verses 1 and 2, and then a pathway to stability in verses 3 through 9, and then a rejection of stability in verses 10 through 25. So we'll look at each of those as we go. But first, the absence of stability. Verses 1 and 2, we see hearts shaking. Let's begin reading here in verse 1 of chapter 7, and I'll comment as we go. It says, In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. We'll pause there to note that this puts us around 735 BC. Um, We don't have a lot of the background here in this text, but we do from 2 Kings 16. So let me just show a map, and uh, this might make more sense so that we don't get lost if we just take a minute here and look at a map. So Judah is where Ahaz is king. That's where Jerusalem is, right? Israel, or Ephraim, as it's called in this text, is the northern kingdom. They've been split for years now. And Aram is another name for Syria. So we have Israel and Syria, or Ephraim and Aram, that have allied together against Judah. Pekah is the king of Israel, and Rezin is the king of Syria. So we continue. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So, these two have allied against Jerusalem. They're coming against Jerusalem to attack, but they couldn't succeed quite yet. Um, why, do, why are they attacking Judah? Would be a question we'd ask at this point. They're attacking Judah because they, these two nations, Israel and Syria, or Ephraim and Aram, are worried about another threat. And if we zoom out, we see it. It's Assyria. They weren't quite this big at this point, but they're heading that direction. So these two are worried about Assyria attacking. And so they want to force Judah to ally with them against the bigger threat of Assyria. And since Judah isn't cooperating, King Ahaz isn't cooperating, they said, okay, we'll attack you, take you off the throne, put somebody in power here who will help us against Assyria. Does that make sense? Had to set that tone just for a moment. Um, They want to replace King Ahaz with a puppet king, not from the line of David. So Ahaz has a choice to make. Is he going to ally with these two enemies of his, or is he going to resist them? What frame of mind is he in as he's making this decision? Let's take a look at verse 2 and see what kind of frame of mind he's in. It says there, When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You see that not-so-subtle reminder there of the house of David, right? So that's a reminder that, hey, King Ahaz... You're from the line of David that was promised by God that there would always be a king from David's line on the throne. You have reason not to have your heart shaking at this moment, yet when Ahaz hears the news of this alliance, 
His heart shakes with fear like trees shaking in the wind. It's instability. So my question at the end of this first point is just, what is that destabilizing thing in your life right now? What is the series of events in your life that has you shaken up? Has your legs feeling a little bit unsteady as you come here this morning? Is it the uncertainty in your employment status? Is it the child of yours whom you fear you're losing, is going astray? Is it that there was an explosion near your home in recent days and it's been a reminder of just how fragile human life is? What is it in your life that has you a little bit off balance this morning? Can anybody relate to this feeling that Ahaz has of his heart shaking? I know I can. So what is there to do? Is there a path forward when our hearts shake? Well, God offers one to Ahaz here in the second section of the text, verses 3 through 9. I'm actually going to read all of these verses, 3 through 9, all at once here, and then we will uh, unpack them. Starting in verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Yashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. There's that firmness language right at the end, right? Another reminder that this is all about stability and instability and where stability can truly be found. And the Lord gives Ahaz a chance in these verses 3 through 9 to find stability in the only place where it can truly be found. All right, so, so, so picture what has just happened here. Um, you're Ahaz. Picture you're Ahaz, okay? You're the king. You are out just outside the city inspecting the water ducks on the outside of the city because... You're expecting a siege, and you want to make sure that the enemy that attacks can't cut off your water supply. So as you're out there inspecting the water ducks, here comes Isaiah, the prophet, headed your way. And you see that he has a young boy with him. And you wonder, who's that boy that Isaiah is bringing with him? So you say, hi, Isaiah. He says, King Ahaz, meet my son. And you say, oh, this is your son. Uh, what, what is your name, young man? And he says, my name is a remnant will return. That got awkward quickly. Because as you may remember from previous weeks, if a remnant will return, that means that they had to be returning from somewhere, which means they had to get kicked out of their land into exile, which is exactly what Isaiah has promised will happen. And that's an indictment of this king that under his reign or in the coming years after him, the people will be taken into exile. 
So they continue. What is Isaiah's actual message for the king? Well, in verse 4, we have it. And Isaiah is basically like, let me say this in four different ways so I make sure I'm totally clear. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. Why? Because these kings you're worried about that are allied against you, they should not be cause for worry. No, even though they're allied together against you, even together, there's nothing that they can do to you. He gives perspective, doesn't he, on the situation. Verse 6, he says, yeah, sure, they have a plan to depose you and put this guy Tabeel in your place who isn't from the line of David. But God has been clear on this one. Verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, no matter how strong the people are that are allied against you. And he gives further perspective. He says, even in their fiercest anger, these two kings, Pekah and Rezin, they're like the smoldering stumps that are left in the fire after you make s'mores, right? These aren't people that you need to be worried about. And if you notice throughout, he keeps calling Pekah, the king of Israel, he just keeps calling him the son of Remaliah, the son of Remaliah, the son of Remaliah. Why? Because Remaliah was a nobody, just a commoner in Israel. And Isaiah is reminding him in that language time and time again, you aren't a nobody, King Ahaz, and you just came out of nowhere. You are a son of David. And with that comes promises from God, the God who promises to protect you against your enemies. And then he gets really specific. Verse 8. He says it's going to be 65 years. Within 65 years, Ephraim that you're so worried about isn't even going to be a people group anymore. They're not even going to be an entity. Why are you worried about them? And then he closes with that final plea in verse 9, and it's worth looking at once more together. At the end of verse 9, the final plea, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, King Ahaz, I know you're looking for stability. I know you're feeling really unstable right now. But King Ahaz, there is exactly one place where you can find true stability, and it is in faith. Faith specifically in the one true God. That word you there in verse 9, is actually plural. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Because even originally, these words were not intended just for Ahaz. And today that's true as well. This is a word for you and for me. If you, if we are not firm in faith, we will not be firm at all. So I want you to think again about that destabilizing situation in your life that's at the forefront of your mind. And I want you to hear that word from the Lord from Isaiah 7-9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Are you standing firm in faith right now with regards to that situation in your life? Or have you hit the panic button in some ways and scrambled to try to bring in reinforcements to rescue you from your instability? Unfortunately, Ahaz has pretty well made up his mind at this point that he is not going to turn to the Lord in faith, but rather he's going to look elsewhere for his restored stability. Namely, he's going to go to, of all places, Assyria. He, this is where he's going to go for help against his enemies that he's really worried about, Israel and Syria. Here's how uh, 2 Kings chapter 16 explains the situation. 
It says, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. That's what we know so far. We've already known that from Isaiah. Here's the part that uh, is new. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. Thank you again about your destabilizing situation. Are you standing firm in faith in the Lord or are you running to Assyria for help? You say Assyria, well, there's no Assyria today. Assyria takes a lot of names in our own lives today. Another name for Assyria is alcohol. Maybe that's where you run when you're feeling unstable. Another name for Assyria is mindless entertainment. Another one is comfort food. Another one is impulse spending. Another one is pornography. Another one is fear-based political activism. There's any number of Assyrias in our own day that when we're feeling unstable and we feel like we're about to, we're panicking and we feel like we've got to fix this right now, where do you run in that moment where you have to fix it right now? If that's anywhere other than the Lord, that's your Assyria. That's my Assyria. That's where I'm running to instead of trusting the Lord alone. But praise God, he's a patient God. He's actually pretty relentless in pursuing us to place our trust in him. And so he actually gives Ahaz, believe it or not, one more chance to repent and place his trust in the Lord alone. And that's our final section of the text. Uh, What we'll see uh, happens here in verses 10 through 25, a rejection of stability. Um, So let's pick up where we left off in verse 10. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In other words, King Ahaz, I'm pleading with you. I'm telling the truth. God is going to come through for you. And he so wants you to trust him that he's going to come through for you and rescue you from your enemies that he's offering to you that he'll give you a sign. And it'll be a miraculous sign. Remember what Gideon asked for, the sign Gideon asked for with the fleece and it would be dew on it, but the rest of the ground would be dry and then vice versa. That was child's play. The Lord will let you ask for a sign as high as the heavens or as deep as the grave. That's, that's what he's allowing you to do right now. Now, some of us, when we hear that, I, I know where our minds are going. Ooh, what would I ask for if the Lord told me I could have any sign? Like, I would ask maybe for the sign of a new car so I didn't have to keep duct taping that one every day and try to get it running. Or somebody else I know is thinking, um, I would ask for the sign that the man of my dreams would fall in love with me. Um, all sorts of different signs we could ask for. He could have asked for anything, yet, let's see what he does. What does he ask for? Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. It's very sad on multiple levels. One level It's sad because he's so set on rejecting the Lord's help and turning to Assyria for help instead that he won't even give God a chance to prove with a sign that he'll protect the people of Judah. But secondly, it's sad because of the way in which he rejects God's help. 
Did you notice that? He rejects God's help with an appearance of religion. Like, oh, I, I wouldn't dare put the Lord to the test. Right? When God hears that, he's done listening to this. This false pretense of religion, that, that sort of thing is nauseating to God. And so listen to what happens in verse 13. And he said, that's Isaiah speaking for God. Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, I'm offering the sign. You're not going to ask for it. Okay, I'm going to give you one anyway. And it's going to be a reminder to you that you should have put your trust in me instead of having your heart set on going to Assyria for help. Um, what is the sign? We're going to see that it certainly is a sign that is as high as the heavens and as deep as the grave. Let's take a look at it in verses 14 through 17. Second half of verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have never come since the day Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. A few observations here. One, this is an after-the-fact sign. Do you notice that? Like, this child that's going to be born hasn't even been conceived yet, so it's going to be months before this child is born and then years before the sign takes place, which, this, which involves the kid growing up and being able to discern uh, good from evil. Right, So Ahaz has to make the decision now. Um, this is an after-the-fact sign. And actually, in Isaiah and all the, uh, all the Old Testament, this is the way most signs work. Not all. Most of them, though, are after-the-fact signs. They come after a series of events to confirm this was an act from God, and here's how you should interpret it. So that's the problem with when we say, well, I would put my trust in God if he'd show me a miraculous sign. Biblically, the answer to that is no, you wouldn't. Because signs in the Bible don't create a faith that wasn't previously there. They confirm a faith that is already there. Think about what generation of God's people saw the highest, the, the most amount of signs. Anybody know? Think of that. Which generation saw the most miraculous signs? The Exodus generation, yeah. The generation that came out of Egypt and saw all these plagues and signs and wonders and the parting of the Red Sea. Yet, God let them all die in the desert without getting to the promised land because they were so incredibly faithless still after seeing all those miraculous signs. So if you're here this morning saying, I'd trust in God if there was a miraculous sign. If you're waiting for a sign from God before you proceed in faith, stop waiting. Proceed in faith. You remember that they asked Jesus for a sign too, and what did he say? I'll give you one sign. I'm going to rise from the dead. Um, there's a faith that we're called to that always will involve some amount of real risk. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. What else do we see here about this sign? It's, it's, uh, there's a question about the identity of this virgin in verse 14, and this child, Emmanuel, who's born to her. Who, who are these people? There are interpretive debates about that, and if you're interested in that, I can steer you in the right direction to read about it. But let me just summarize briefly what is going on here. First off, this child born Emmanuel 
is a child born in King Ahaz's day in the first instance. Um, here's, here's why I say that. You see the description of him in verse 15, right? He's going to grow up eating fine foods. Um, why? Because there's going to be nobody left in the land. And so the food that exists in the land is going to be enough to feed everybody who's there richly. Why is that going to be the case that nobody's left in the land? Because they will have been exiled during the life of this child. Um, before he is old enough to know the evil from the good, um, to discern that. So, um, in the years following, Assyria is going to attack. That is going to come true. And during the lifetime of this child that's born in the time of Isaiah, a woman who was, the, who was a virgin at the time Isaiah said this, will become no longer a virgin, have this child who will be named Emmanuel, and that child Emmanuel will grow up and be assigned to King Ahaz that he should have trusted God as Ephraim and Syria, that King Ahaz was worried about, will be decimated. So that's Ahaz's day. Yes, there's a child there. Yes, he's a sign. But somebody who's paying close attention, a faithful person paying close attention, even in Isaiah's day, may have had some lingering questions about this child Emmanuel, even as they watched this child Emmanuel grow up and discern good from evil. They might have wondered, hey, this sign makes sense and everything, but I wonder why it was referred to as a sign uh, that could be as high as heaven and as deep as the grave if it was just a child that was going to grow up and the timing was going to work out. It seems a little bit odd to have been spoken of so highly, and I wonder why his name's Emmanuel. I wonder why God is with us. Is such, why did Isaiah make such a big deal about that naming? It's not totally clear why this is particularly fitting for this child in this particular situation that we're in. So there are questions there that maybe point us to wonder if there's something more going on, if there's a fuller fulfillment of this, maybe even coming down the road. And then 700 years or so later, one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, um, I wonder how he discovered this first off. Maybe Jesus taught him about it. Or maybe he was just studying Isaiah 7 and realized it for himself by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. But here's what Matthew observes in his gospel. Um, This is the angel talking to Joseph. She, Mary, will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew comments, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Fulfill often means fill up, give fullness to what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I don't know, but I wonder if as Matthew reflected on this and looked at it in Isaiah 7, Uh, if tears came to his eyes as he realized how this fulfilled or filled up the prophecy that was given by Isaiah back in chapter 7. That in this case, there would be a second Emmanuel, a greater Emmanuel. And his mother wouldn't just be a virgin at the time of the prophecy, she would be a virgin at the time of his conception and even his birth. And his name would be Emmanuel, Not just because God is with us, but because he is God who is with us. This child would literally, the second Emmanuel, the greater Emmanuel, would be God with us. 
Friends, please don't reject the second and greater Emmanuel. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, was God in the flesh, God with us, and lived a perfect life and died on our behalf and was raised again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he promises that he will come again. And he will be, once again, God with us in our midst, very literally so. And that truth that our Savior Jesus is coming again is simultaneously the best news and the worst news that, I, that you could hear this morning. If you belong to him, it's the best news that I could share with you this morning because you'll get to experience God with us forever, for all of eternity in his loving presence. If you don't yet belong to him, if you thus far in your life have been rejecting him, then the idea of God with us is the worst news that you could possibly hear this morning because, as we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 6, the reality is that the moment that you enter the presence of a holy God and catch even a glimpse of the hem of his robe that fills his temple, you'll fall on your face, devastated by the knowledge that you are too wicked to even exist in his presence. But that news, God is with us, doesn't have to remain bad news for you. It can become really great news even today. Because whether it's good news or bad news just depends on which side of the line you're standing on. So if you're here this morning and you've been spending your time trying to straddle that line maybe um, about whether you're going to belong to Christ or not, this could be the morning in which you place your trust in him for your stability. This could be the morning that from here on out, you decide you're going to build your life on the only sure foundation, the only unshakable foundation, the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Unfortunately, Ahaz refused to do that. He refused to put his trust in the one true God. Instead, he ran to Assyria, and Assyria ended up being far worse than all of the non-threats that he was so worried about. Let's finish out the passage and read verses 18 through 25 to see what Assyria does to Judah, well, first to Israel and then to Judah. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. The destruction that Assyria is going to bring, that's what we just heard. And isn't it that way with our own Assyrias in our lives? Isn't that what they do to us? Sure, they offer temporary relief from the instability that we're feeling, but don't they then turn on us and attack us and leave us even worse off than we were before? Hasn't that been your experience? 
the substances, the experiences, the entities that you run to instead of to the Lord? That's why our big idea today is this. If we want enduring stability, we must trust exclusively in the God who is with us. If we want enduring stability, we must trust exclusively in the God who is with us. I want to invite you to think once more today about that destabilizing series of events in your life that you're going to go home to after you leave this place. If you haven't been able to think of one, maybe even just think about our church right now and the pastoral transition that's upcoming and how unsettling that can be. Isaiah 7 is a word for us this morning that in the midst of those destabilizing circumstances, there are a million places we can run for temporary stability. If we're looking for a quick fix, there's any number of places we can go for a quick fix to the instability we're feeling. After all, Assyria did fix the problem in the short term by defeating Syria and Israel. But if we want enduring stability, there's only one option. And it's to trust exclusively in God who is with us, Emmanuel. Do you know him? If you do know him, has your faith in him just been a belief that he is going to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card when you breathe your last breath? Or... Does your faith in Emmanuel extend to the belief that even in your unsettling circumstances today, that he can bring stability into those? Lift up your eyes. See the riches of the all-sufficient king seated on his throne in glory. See his scepter that stretches the expanse of unmeasured space. Hear him who holds all things together declare all things are mine without exception. See the curiosity of the cosmos as Christ condescends to his most cherished creatures. See the astonishment of angels as the Almighty advances towards earth. See the humility of the pre-existent king born of a virgin birth. The infinite becomes infinite. The maker becomes man. The divine becomes despised. And the Christ is crucified. The author of all creation cursed upon the tree that he himself spoke into being. And the Lord of life was laid in a tomb. But the grave could not contain him. And so the son of man was raised to life. Why? To draw near, to pierce our greatest fear, to shed satisfying blood on our behalf, to give back the life we were meant to have, to enjoy, to hear, to adore, to taste, and to look with peace upon our Savior's face, and to embrace him with an undying faith, to interpose all his worthiness into us serve the most unworthy and undeserved. He is our God, and we are mere men made by him. We are not like him, but he loves us and moves among us. The great uncreated and the created no longer separated. He is Emmanuel.
Lord, we thank you that that's true. That you sent your son, Emmanuel, God with us, to bring us back into right relationship with you once again. And we thank you for the promise that you continue to be with us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've sent to live in our hearts and live with us in a very real way now. And we thank you for the hope that's to come, that that same Emmanuel will come once again, return, and that for all of eternity, we will live with you in a renewed heaven and earth in perfect harmony with the God that we love. Thank you for your good news, and thank you for how you foretold it even almost 3,000 years ago. In Jesus' name, amen.